Hi, this is The Tolkien Professor, and welcome to lecture number seven of The Hobbit series. In this lecture, we will discuss the rest of the main action of the story, starting with Smaug's death in chapter 14, Fire and Water, and going through the Battle of Five Armies in chapter 17, The Clouds Burst. When Smaug crashes down upon Lake Town, the destined climax towards which the story seems to have been building appears to be complete. The magical thrush has played his part, not only as a set-piece in the prophecy written in the moon letters on the map, but as a key figure in bringing about the destruction of the dragon. In a sense, therefore, we can see that the prophecy or instructions or whatever they were that Thor had written on his map do more than describe how the mountain may be entered. They hint at the mechanism of Smaug's fate. Even Gandalf's intuition about the inclusion of a burglar in the party seems unexpectedly vindicated, for without Bilbo's inside information about the hole in Smaug's armor, the thrush would have had nothing to report and Bard's last shot would likely have been in vain. But everything has come together to fulfill the old songs. The king under the mountain has returned. The heir of the forsaken line of Girion, lord of Dale, himself slew the dragon and delivered their land from oppression. Our fantasy quest seems to have come to a fairy tale ending. We might be inclined to imagine, with Bilbo, that the adventure was, properly speaking, over with the death of the dragon. If we are, however, we will find ourselves, like Bilbo, very much mistaken. In previous chapters, we have seen Tolkien's description of the desolation of the dragon. Back in chapter 11, we're given Balin's recollection that the blasted waste was once a living and thriving region. The mountain sides were green with woods, he says, and all the sheltered valley rich and pleasant in the days when the bells rang in that town. Smaug seems by his very presence to have strangled the life of the whole region, a visible representation of his destruction of the kingdoms of dwarves and humans which had been. The blasted valley and desolate mountainside, where there were once woods and fertile fields, are inescapable reminders of the thriving civilization that has been laid waste. But there's also a moral or spiritual resonance to the desolation. The kingdoms destroyed by the dragon were not only fair and flourishing, but they were marked by a noteworthy peace and cooperation between different races. There had been a major center of dwarfish power living symbiotically with a human city. We were told back in chapter 1 by Thorin that the dwarf smithcraft was in great demand in the human city, and that they in turn provided food supplies which the dwarves never bothered to grow or find for themselves. They even lived in close proximity with a major elf kingdom in Mirkwood, and despite the traditional hostility between elf and dwarf, which we were told about back in chapter 8, were led to understand that the old dwarf kingdom under the mountain lived in harmony with the elven king. Chapters 14 to 17, however, show us that the waste created by the dragon was more than the withering of plants and the destruction of cities, and that the desolation of the great worm doesn't simply evaporate when he dies. When the standoff between Thorin and the army of elves and lake men begins, the narrator tells us that a big factor contributing to the tense situation is the power that gold has upon which a dragon has long brooded. Smaug may be dead, but his influence is still felt among his old enemies. This is what the narrator will later characterize as the dragon sickness, and I'd like to pause for a moment to consider its nature. It would be easy to think that dragon sickness is simply greed, the desire to have gold, and the reluctance to give any away. If we think back to what we saw of Smaug himself, however, we can see that dragonishness is more than mere acquisitiveness. Yes, Smaug is greedy, but he was also very proud and self-regarding, even vain. And remember how he tried to corrupt Bilbo in their conversation. Smaug tried to sow discord and suspicion between Bilbo and the dwarves, suggesting that the dwarves had tricked him into risking his life for a reward they knew he could not really transport back to his home. 
As Bilbo talks to Smaug, a nasty suspicion began to grow in his mind. He begins to question whether his so-called friends have been laughing in their sleeves at him all the time. This, we are told, is the effect that dragon talk has on the inexperienced. Smaug excites Bilbo's greed, but it's a greed leading to distrust and seeking to create a gulf between those who should be friends and allies, a greed that sets a path towards complete isolation and utter selfishness. This selfishness and isolation were some of the hallmarks of Smaug's own attitude, and it is this attitude which still lingers in the desolation he created. Thorin, of course, develops a pretty acute case of this dragon sickness. When Thorin learns that Smaug is dead, the first thing he sets about doing is fortifying the front gates. Now, the front gate has already been an important feature in the landscape. When Smaug was alive, it was a place of dread, a steaming hole from which the dragon might at any moment emerge in wrath. In the old days, however, the gates of Thror were the open boundary between the two realms of the mountain and dale. The gate is given special significance by the fact that the river running flows out of it from its subterranean wellspring. Figuratively, the life and well-being of the whole region flowed from the open gates of the mountain. The prophetic songs of Lake Town also emphasize this, foretelling the time when the river that emerges from those gates will run with gold. Even the song the dwarves make for Thorin talks about the gates in the same way, proclaiming that, Here at the gates the king awaits, his hands are rich with gems and gold. The dwarves might not envision an entire river of gold pouring freely out of those gates and into the country roundabout, but they clearly do associate the gates of the king with generosity and welcome. Thorin's hasty rebuilding of his gates, however, is very far from a re-establishment of that older ideal of the open gates of the generous king under the mountain. Ironically, Thorin doesn't build gates at all, just a solid stone wall with no door. The gate of the new king under the mountain is not a site of union or a source of blessing. It's a blank wall designed to keep everyone out and to brick up Thorin, and most importantly, his treasure, solidly inside. Thorin may declare himself the king under the mountain when his neighbors come knocking, but he certainly does not take up the mantle of cooperation and harmony between races that once accompanied that title. When Bard comes to speak about the treasure, he gives three different reasons why Thorin should give up some of his gold. His first two points are premised on simple justice. First, since Bard himself killed the dragon, he deserves a share of its treasure. Second, the treasure that Smaug gathered is not only the treasure of Thorin's father and grandfather. The wealth of the men of Dale has also been gathered up and brought into the Horde. As the heir of Girion, Bard is rather gently pointing out that Thorin is laying claim to some treasure that isn't his at all, but belongs to the heirs of Dale. Bilbo considers these claims to be quite obviously compelling, and wrongly expects that Thorin will have to admit what justice was in them. In his third point, Bard goes beyond mere justice and appeals to Thorin's charity and compassion, and to his gratitude towards those who helped him when he was in need, and who have now suffered for it. Thorin's heated rejection of this last claim is jarring, and it reveals much about Thorin's current moral state. He calls Bard's appeal to gratitude and generosity his worst cause, and complains that he put it last and in the chief place. Thorin replies only with legalism, saying that the treasure did not rightfully belong to Smaug, and thus damages for Smaug's actions should not be claimed from the Horde. But Bard is quite right. In this third appeal lies an invitation to Thorin to truly re-establish the kingdom under the mountain in its glory of old, a source of power, prosperity, and protection to all the lands round about. Thorin has the opportunity to open the legendary gates of the king once more and fulfill the prophecies about the renewal of the lands. 
but Thorin is entirely turned inward. He seems to give no thought to the responsibilities that accompany the position of king under the mountain, and he shows no glimmer of compassion towards others. All he's thinking about is the gold, and his ownership of it. Thorin's selfishness comes into even clearer focus when the Arkenstone is revealed in the hands of those he thinks of as his enemies. All Thorin can think about are his own rights, his own claim on the stone, and his outrage at its being held from him. "'That stone was my father's and is mine,' he says, adding, "'Why should I purchase my own?' In his anger, Thorin is overlooking the fact that he himself put Bard in exactly the same position." Bard is now offering to purchase with the Arkenstone the treasure that is rightfully due to him, both as the dragon slayer and as the heir of Girion, whose treasure is in the hoard. But Thorin, of course, is not even close to being able to see things objectively at this point. Thorin's obsession with the treasure leads him not only to refuse compassion for his allies, but to turn from simple justice. As soon as he starts negotiating with Bard for the return of the Arkenstone, he begins some rather sharp dealing. He agrees to let the ransom of the Arkenstone be accounted the promised share of this traitor, meaning Bilbo. But in promising Bilbo's portion, he quickly specifies one-fourteenth share of the hoard in silver and gold, setting aside the gems. Thorin, therefore, has immediately begun to negotiate in bad faith. For Bilbo's share, specified in the letter which he has hilariously kept in his pocket this whole time, and has just pulled out and reread a couple pages earlier, was for one-fourteenth of the total profits, with no exclusion of the gems, clearly a significant percentage of the total treasure. Even worse, Thorin swiftly begins plotting quite explicit acts of bad faith, for the narrator tells us that so strong was the bewilderment of the treasure upon him, he was pondering whether by help of Dan he might not recapture the Arkenstone and withhold the share of the reward. This is Thorin's lowest point, when his greed has extinguished in him not only his generosity, but even his honor. As he sits brooding on the dragon's hoard behind the gates that he has bricked up, his overpowering desire for the gold is working to make him the enemy of everyone around him. As Gandalf remarks, he is certainly not making a very splendid figure as king under the mountain. But Thorin isn't alone in acting out the selfishness and division from others which make up such an important part of the dragon sickness. The elves and humans involved also show a certain amount of this same taint. Bard might say to Thorin during their initial party that they are not yet foes, but he is, in fact, the leader of an army that is encamped in force in front of the gate. Not only have they come armed for war, as Thorin observes, but their removal of their camp from the other side of the river to the valley right between the arms of the mountain could be plausibly interpreted as an aggressive move, even by someone less paranoid and touchy than Thorin. Even before the first parley has happened, Bard and the Elven King have placed themselves in position for a siege. Bard's claims on the treasure are just and sensible, but he himself is grim and hard, and his commitment to establishing peace is pretty limited. When Dan shows up and starts to threaten him with real battle, Bard has no hesitation. He is ready to launch an attack against the dwarves, seizing a tactical advantage in order to cut them to pieces. The Elven King does show hesitation. He alone among the captains seems to want to avoid conflict. Long will I tarry, he says, ere I begin this war for gold. And he urges Bard, let us hope still for something that will bring reconciliation. This is excellent, and the only completely undragonish thing that any of the captains are saying at this point. And yet, even the Elven King is not completely free of the dragonish infection. Remember the comments back in chapter 8 about his desire to have as great a treasure trove as the Elven Kings of old. 
He has been doing good and showing mercy to his neighbors, the lake men. But yet Thorin's remark that the elven king has no place in the debate between him and Bard is perfectly true. The elves have no claim on the treasure of any kind. But when the king heard of the death of Smaug, he immediately set off with an army, simply as a profiteer, to seize the gold for himself. As the elven king marches with his army, the crows were gathered thick above him. The elven king's march has not exactly given the savvy carrion birds the impression that his primary hope is for reconciliation and peace. In a sense, by bringing an army at all, he has indeed begun this war for gold, or at least shown himself willing to fight one. What's more, the image even suggests a rather uncomfortable parallel between the elven army and the scavengers who are gathered over their heads. Roach the Raven warns Thorin that the treasure is likely to be his death, and the same could be said for everybody in the region. The dragon is dead, but the ancient realms of mountain and dale have not found the peace and harmony foretold in the songs. Instead, the desolation of the dragon continues and threatens to spread. Bilbo's comment is exactly right. The whole place still stinks of dragon. Into this deadlock steps Mr. Baggins. Bilbo's perspective is quite different from those of the dwarves, elves, and men by whom he's surrounded. I talked in the previous lecture about Bilbo's separation from the dwarves, the ways in which his attitude and outlook and priorities are simply different from theirs. In the last set of chapters, we saw that he was always out of step with the dwarves, depressed when they were optimistic and jubilant, bright and upbeat when they were despairing. In chapter 16, A Thief in the Night, we see Bilbo once again out of step with everyone else's feelings and attitudes. And once again, he's right and they're wrong. Chapter 16 contains no bold and desperate battles against hordes of giant spiders, and no clever and daring rescue attempts, but this really is Bilbo's finest hour. In his quiet and at times comically businesslike conversation with Bard and the Elven King, Bilbo performs his most heroic act of the book. Bilbo looks comically out of place in the army camp. Bard and the Elven King gaze at him curiously, for a hobbit in elvish armor partly wrapped in an old blanket was something new to them. This image of Bilbo is a wonderful snapshot of where and who he is at this point in the story, altogether a strange and puzzling mix of the small and domestic and the splendid and adventurous. These outward oddities, however, reflect an inward state and attitude that is also something new to the army captains, and something much needed. Bilbo is apparently the only one in the desolation of Smaug who is free from the dragon spell. In coming to his would-be allies in order to give them the Arkenstone, Bilbo becomes the one person who is actively working against the dragon sickness. As we've seen, the symptoms of dragon sickness are not only personal greed, but divisiveness, a distrust of others. In his small but heroic action, Bilbo is standing against both. When I say that Bilbo is free of the dragon spell, however, it's important to remember that he's not simply immune. If Bilbo had some kind of actual immunity to these particular temptations, his choice to act contrary to them wouldn't be all that impressive. But we should remember that Bilbo himself showed many early signs of coming under their influence. At his first sight of the Horde, Bilbo's heart was filled and pierced with enchantment and with the desire of dwarves, and he gazed motionless, almost forgetting the frightful guardian, at the gold beyond price and count. In his conversation with Smaug, he is plainly susceptible to the temptation to distrust the dwarfs, harboring nasty suspicions. Sharpest of all is the allure of the Arkenstone itself. When he picked it up, we're told, suddenly Bilbo's arm went towards it, drawn by its enchantment. As he closes his eyes and puts it in his deepest pocket, he says, Now I am a burglar indeed, 
recognizing that he is doing something which is quite like stealing from his friends. When he acquires the gem and conceals it from Thorin, despite the dwarf's increasingly desperate attempts to find it, he is not at first thinking of anything but keeping the precious thing to himself. This is why Bilbo's decision to offer up the stone in order to avert a war is so heroic. Bilbo is able to strike against the dragon sickness which is infecting everyone else because he has first conquered it within himself. We can see the struggle, as Bilbo, not without a shudder, not without a glance of longing, handed the marvelous stone to Bard. Bilbo's act is a costly one. When he found the Arkenstone, he said to himself that he would choose it if they took all the rest. Now he is choosing to give up all of it, and to return home with nothing at all. So why is he doing it? Bilbo performs his act of self-sacrifice because he values something else more than the treasure. I am merely trying to avoid trouble for all concerned, he explains. In many ways, Bilbo's reasoning makes his action even more remarkable. It isn't that he wants other things for himself even more than he wants treasure. He does what he does because he is putting the good of others way before his own good. He would give up every benefit to him from his adventure, forego any payoff for this long and enormously dangerous journey, if by doing so he can establish peace and prevent civil war from breaking out among the people who he knows should be living in harmony. The lives of these strangers and the health of this foreign land hundreds of miles from his own home mean more to him in the end than any profit which he might personally obtain. Bilbo's earlier deeds of bravery might have been more flashy, but this is without question his finest moment. Bilbo's sacrifice is also the final culmination of his career as a burglar. As I mentioned in the last podcast, Bilbo's theft of the cup from Smaug is not the ultimate burglarious act that both he and the dwarves believe it to be at the time. The true climax of his burgling activities is the theft of the Arkenstone, as he himself recognizes by saying as he pockets it, "'Now I am a burglar indeed.' It's not clear at the time, however, what purpose this final act of burglary is going to serve. For a time, as I've suggested, it looks like it could actually turn to evil. Bilbo keeps the stone to himself at first because he wants it for himself, and he could continue to keep it and actually steal it. Ever since the troll encounter, Bilbo has been trying to fit the role of professional burglar, and I've suggested several times that he has certainly grown into the role as the book has gone on. He's earned a spot in the Burglar Hall of Fame by this time, no question. But it has yet to be determined what the end of that road looks like, and it is quite possible that it could have been a dark end, marked by greed and betrayal. Instead, Bilbo blazes what might be an entirely new trail in the annals of burglary. I may be a burglar, he says, but I am an honest one, I hope, more or less. In the end, Bilbo has chosen to accept this sketchy new identity thrust upon him back in Chapter 1 and take it in a new and positive direction. And so the final piece of Bilbo's paradoxical identity falls into place. The Tookish Baggins, the little hobbit in elvish armor, the honest burglar. What good did it do the dwarves to bring a burglar along with them on their expedition? Why did Gandalf believe that Bilbo would be an important addition to their party, as unlikely as that seemed at the time? The dwarves thought they were hiring help in getting into the mountain and reclaiming their treasure, and though that plan was not very well thought through, it was as far as they went. Against the odds, and despite their lack of planning, Bilbo was instrumental in accomplishing these things, and as a bonus, he also saved their lives a bunch of times along the way. But in the end, his burglarious career culminates not in stealing treasure, but in giving it away. 
His final purpose is to be an instrument of healing and reconciliation after the dragon's destruction. Gandalf, in clapping Bilbo unexpectedly on the back and telling him, well done, shows that he at least understands and appreciates the rather singular trajectory that Bilbo's career has taken. Unfortunately, as things turn out, it rather looks like Bilbo's gesture will come to nothing. Instead, a battle that none had expected breaks out. The arrival of the goblins and wargs on the scene sweeps away all the dragonish concerns of the previous few chapters, just as the elves, men, and dwarves are themselves nearly swept away. There's a lot I could say about the Battle of Five Armies, but I want to focus on one thing in particular, its sudden and spectacular ending. Tolkien believed that one of the most important things about fantasy literature is the kind of happy ending that they often had traditionally. He spoke in his essay on fairy stories of the sudden joyous turn at the end of many fairy tales, describing it as a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. This kind of happy ending, Tolkien named a eucatastrophe, which just means a good catastrophe. If you've listened to my podcast, you've heard me talk about eucatastrophe before. The unlooked-for and decisive arrival of the eagles at the end of the Battle of Five Armies is the classic example of eucatastrophe in Tolkien's fiction. Bilbo's ecstatic cry of, The eagles are coming! has become an iconic moment for readers of Tolkien. But, nice as it is of the eagles to pull everyone's bacon out of the fire, remember that's Bilbo's metaphor for aquiline rescue, not mine, I think there's another more important eucatastrophe in this chapter. I'm referring to the outbreak of the battle itself. Remember that when the battle begins, complete disaster is mere seconds away. Despite all of Bilbo's efforts to prevent trouble, the worst kind of trouble is already in motion. The dwarves of the Iron Hill under Dayan's command, whose arrival has escalated the tension dramatically, are actually charging to attack. The first shots have already been fired, and the old peace and harmony between dwarf, human, and elf that had made this land so remarkable in the days of Thorin's fathers is about to be permanently marred by open bloodshed. At this precise moment, and in the very nick of time, the cavalry arrives! The goblins have saved the day! This might seem counterintuitive, but we can see it quite clearly when we look at its effects. Remember, the dwarves on one side and the elves and men on the other are actually running towards each other with weapons in hand. There is nothing else on Middle-earth that could intervene and not only prevent the two sides from fighting, but bring about immediate cooperation between the two sides. The goblins were the foes of all, the narrator explains, and at their coming all other quarrels were forgotten. The miraculous and timely arrival of the evil goblin hordes and their vicious wolf allies suddenly, miraculously, transforms violent anger into solidarity and goodwill. The eagle's intervention to change the outcome of the battle is dramatic, but its timing is less precise and its effects actually less profound. Yes, it will make a difference, of course, whether the good guys win or lose. But think for a second about what has been averted. Whatever happened in the battle between dwarves, elves, and men, which almost occurred, that is, whoever won or lost, there would have been irreparable damage done with wide-reaching effects. A defeat of the allied forces by the goblins here would be a tragedy, but a tragedy that would, if anything, draw closer the ties between the free peoples in the long run. The victory, in one sense, is just icing on the cake. In the big picture, the battle is won as soon as the elves, dwarves, and men start fighting on the same side rather than against each other. The capstone of this sudden turn in the story is Thorin's last great charge. We have seen Thorin brick up the gates of the mountain, and in Bard's words, fence himself like a robber in his hold. 
We have heard Thorin cast aside friendship, gratitude, compassion, and even honesty in his selfish obsession with preserving and recovering his treasure, compromising the honor and dignity of his hereditary position of leadership in the interest of his gold. In a rush even more dramatic than the arrival of the goblins, Thorin also suddenly turns. The stones with which he blocked up the gates are thrown down, and Thorin emerges to rally and support the thieves he had so recently been plotting against. To me, he cries, to me, elves and men, to me, O oh my kinsfolk! Once again, Thorin places himself at the center, but this is a complete reversal. Instead of placing his own desires and his own rights above the good of everyone else, he charges to the front, placing his own life in jeopardy to come to the rescue of all. And even the elves leave their posts and their own commanders to run to his side, joining the last charge of the king under the mountain. This is the return of the king foretold in song. Whether his charge succeeds or fails, his dragon sickness has been cured. Thorin is saved. The Hobbit, you will notice, has gotten awfully serious in the last few chapters. The quest for dragon gold was a little cartoonish at the beginning, but the story has grown up a lot since then. The destruction of Lake Town and the reminder that many of its people would die of sickness and hunger in the coming winter was sobering enough. The dark corruption of dragonish desires that has lain like a fog over the triumphant heroes ever since has been in a sense even worse. In the battle, the childish tone of the book fades completely amidst the gruesomeness of the slaughtered soldiers littering the ground, with vampire bats fixed on the corpses lapping up the blood of the dead. When Thorin and company charge out of the gate, they look nothing like the comic troop who fell in a heap on Bilbo's doormat back in Bag End. We have arrived at a world of grim realities. This facing of realities remains true even despite the literal fairy tale ending that the battle receives. Some people focus so much on the sudden eagle rescue that they overlook how far Tolkien has gone out of his way to avoid a simplistic rose-tinted ending. We could have had the unexpected death of the dragon followed by peace, happiness, and the reestablishment of the fabled dwarven kingdom under the mountain, and everyone lives happily ever after. But it doesn't happen that way. Instead, the whole region nearly goes up in flames as the desire for dragon gold almost destroys even the ruinous remnants of that ancient kingdom. Again, we get Bilbo's heroic and self-sacrificial surrendering of the gem, taking a brave and humble stand against the selfishness and greed which is running rampant around him. We could have had everyone shamed and then won over by his noble example, shaking hands in chagrin and swearing eternal friendship. And once again, everyone lives happily ever after. But it doesn't work out that way. Life in Middle-earth, which, remember, is only an old name for the world we live in, is not usually that clean and sterilized. Instead, reconciliation only comes in the face of war and loss, amidst sorrow and suffering. Along the path to the happy ending lie the bodies of many men and many dwarves and many a fair elf that should have lived yet long ages merrily in the wood. Bilbo, Gandalf, and their allies' lives are spared by an unexpected and miraculous grace. But victory comes through suffering, and it's accompanied by great grief, as Bilbo is soon to find out. That's all for Hobbit Lecture Number 7. In Lecture Number 8, Return and Recovery, we will trace our steps with Bilbo and find, as he does, that home doesn't look quite the same anymore. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.